Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible. From the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hello, Side Wooers. This is Sarah coming at you with another episode. This week, I have a conversation that I recorded with Bay Area artist Rochelle Reichert, and I met her originally through the 1240 Minnesota Street studio program in San Francisco, and we both had studios there, and so we got to know each other. From her bio, I just wanted to read a little excerpt. Rochelle works in a variety of media to explore landscapes permanently altered by climate change and industrialization. She's interested in Earth observation satellite imagery, and she actually made drawings that went on a satellite that then orbited the Earth. So we talk a little bit about that. Her research focuses on sites of specific extracted materials like salt, clay, lithium. She's super smart, and I learned a ton during our conversation, so I really hope you enjoy it. We go all over the place from mushroom suits that you wear when you die all the way to Madonna and Freddie Mercury, of course, makes a little cameo at the end. But yeah, if you have any thoughts or feedback about the episode, as always, please do not hesitate to reach out. You can email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com. If you enjoy the episode, please feel free to subscribe, rate and review and share the sidewoo with your woo woo friends. You can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram for updates at The Sidewoo. Thank you so much for listening, and on to the episode. So maybe you could share with listeners just like, an elevator pitch about your work, which is so varied, like depending on the material and the site that you work in. But I don't know if there's like an overarching kind of way that you talk about just your practice in general. Yeah. I mean, I am a studio-based artist who also works research-based. And so I'll start a project basically with a question of from a specific landscape and a material from that specific landscape. And I will make a series of work based on that. My kind of long-term project I've been working on is specifically with salt from the San Francisco Bay. And that came up specifically because I live here and it's this material from this place that is just has captured my imagination. It's a really unique ecosystem and salt is so significant in so many different ways and environmentally, culturally, biologically, that it's kept me moving and thinking through this material a lot. Another project I have ongoing is working with satellites and satellite imagery, earth imagery, and thinking about how we understand, visualize, and conceptualize landscape through these images and then juxtapose it with being in a place. A lot of my practice is about going out into uh, these specific places and being in the landscape and then coming getting an understanding of it physically and emotionally and then working through that in the studio. Cool. Yeah. And how did you start working with salt? Yeah. I, like I said, I was just, I live in, in the Bay Area, so I really wanted a better understanding of this place that I called home. And I was 
when I started working with Salt, I'd been living here for about three years and just felt like I really hadn't grounded myself here. And so I started taking a lot of walks by the bay and just started really becoming interested in the material and then started thinking, oh, maybe I can make artwork with it. And um, is it because you were looking at the water and thinking about what's in it or because I feel like it's easy to forget because I don't know, I don't personally go swimming in the bay or in the ocean in San Francisco. And so until you get that blast of salty water in your eyeball or something, I think it's easy to forget that it is a lot of salt in there in addition to water, you know, and other garbage and whatever. But it, so I'm curious, like how you made the leap from seeing all this water to thinking specifically about the salt. Well, salt is, it naturally forms in the shores of the bay and certain parts of the air, of the bay area. So it's like crusty in there. So it wasn't that big of oh, a, okay, a yeah. leap. And there are these, you know, you can see it when you fly into San Francisco. You can see all those colors in the bay. Those are all from the salt evaporation ponds. And then what also struck me is that it's this ongoing restoration project that is happening in the San Francisco Bay down by San Jose. It's all, it's mostly like by Hayward and south of there, all the way down to San Jose. And it's this really interesting project that's taking, it's going to take 50 years. Oh, wow. And it's all about trying to restore this industrial landscape. And it's super interesting because it's not only that, that there used to be tons and tons of salt evaporation ponds in the bay. And now there's just one, but all that land, because it was these salt flats basically for 200 years plus, it became this habitat for mostly birds and different animals. And so when they, when tasked with the responsibility of restoring it, it was also thinking through how we understand how nature has adapted to this landscape and then negotiating these natural wetland spaces with these new spaces that were from industrialization and how to move forward with that. And I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I just find it so interesting because we're, we're starting to have these conversations more and more in different areas of how we reconcile our industrial past with kind of restoration and thinking about what's natural because things are never going to go back to what they were before we developed all these areas. Yeah, I think that's kind of the pipe dream fantasy that we can get back to square one. And maybe that's why it's so easy to get really depressed about it. And it's not realistic. And so it's, well, if we shift a perspective towards what's possible instead of let's go back to pristine nature, like maybe it'll feel more realistic and possible and like you can take baby steps towards there. But I wanted to, thinking about your work and looking at all the different bodies of your work, because you use a lot of materials that are found in the ground and like rocks and you respond to land. And I was thinking about geology as the study of essentially time through rocks and the way that rocks tell stories. And I feel like even though your work is so, I don't want to use the word abstract because I feel like that's too reductive, but it's non-representational more or less and it's minimalist in a way and but it's really telling the story of all these places and all these people who inhabit places before we've industrialized and colonized so i don't know do you identify as a storyteller at all or i think yes but non-verbally 
Yeah, like it's very under wraps. And I think that's cool because you're also not telling other people's stories for them, but you're, it's like you're bringing awareness and giving people enough information to fill in the immediate gaps around like, oh, right, this happened because we did this, you know? And then when I look at your work, it generates this new understanding of a context of a land that I may have been familiar with, like the San Francisco Bay or something. And then thinking about the Olone people who are here, you know, or other projects that you've dealt with, like the indigenous population and how industrialization has affected their experience of the land. And Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's, thank you, first of all. I, I'm hoping that people can generate their own stories through their experiences through the work, especially, mm-hmm. I think the work has a different context, especially this, the salt work can have a different context when I show salt from outside of, if I show salt from the Bay here on the San Francisco Bay, it's going to have a different context than if I show it in another city, just because it does have that direct yeah. relationship to where you're, you're standing. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I I love that about it is that it it's but then again like everyone has a relationship with salt because you need to eat it to survive. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, huh? yeah. Is is it required as part of our diet? Mm-hmm. Like for electrolytes and stuff. Yeah, oh. yeah, absolutely. We would die without it. We wouldn't be able to absorb water, or like our muscles wouldn't be able to move, and so oh, wow. we we need it essentially. And it's the only rock we eat, which I kind of love because I love rocks and I love eating. <laughs> so I love rocks. Yeah, we should all love rocks. They're so cool. They're so cool. So and then you get to eat some. So that's all. Yeah, you get to eat rocks. That's awesome. (laughs) How like how long have you loved rocks? Was this a long time thing? Yeah. Like growing up, did you always? Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in the East Coast and I always spent a lot of time in Western Massachusetts. And there's a lot of boulders there that were left from glaciers, the Ice Age, basically. And so I was always just, I, I don't know, I was always climbing on them. I was always drawing them. I was always interested in them. They're always kind of like friends. I feel like I've done meditations around rocks recently because I've been kind of exploring the hiking here in L.A. And they, like in these meditations, because they can't move. And so the way they connect with people is to like into other land and each other is to like radiate energy outwards. And I think that's where like crystals are known for having this like energy field. But I think all rocks do. And and it just, there's something too where they hold this sense of like stability and responsibility for the things around them that I think is like really touching because they're like the symbol of like stability and almost these like caretakers. I don't know if you feel that, but. Yeah, I mean they're like steady. I'm like I, I'm also someone who has who has at times had like an emotional rock. Do you know how you like carry a rock in your pocket? Or there's like a, a rubbing stone. That's the thing. Okay. Just to like there's something I don't know very steadying about it. And then I was thinking about as you were talking. I recently went to Las Vegas for a project, and when I landed, I met an artist, and she told me that. The reason why people, what Las Vegas is so polarizing and people either find their soul or they go insane is because of the rocks that are there. I think it's, maybe it's quartz. I can't, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but whatever the, the rocks are, they, they magnify whatever you are, I guess. And so that's why like people, 
that's their reasoning of why people like go on these gambling binges. And, oh, wow. Isn't that, isn't that's that crazy? so wild. I've yeah. been getting the message that I should look more into like Nevada and the landscape there, like in my work and just thinking about energy like of different places. That's so fascinating. Yeah, we should talk <laughs> and talk about that because. Wow. Yeah, Nevada is a very powerful. How did you find that out? Because I, I was just, well, I was in this show down there. I'm currently in a show and it's 10 artists and we have to do site visits. And so I went down there for a site visit and it's these site visits of locations of land art in Nevada. And so one of the artists on my site visits told me about it. And I was just, it just stuck oh, with wow. me. And I hear, I was like in this playa, this dry lake playa looking at these mountains and it's just so gorgeous and it's everything that you don't think of when you think of Las Vegas. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think the towns that pop up around in different places, like the New York or in LA, like LA is known for all this like spirituality and everything. And then it's interesting to think about how much the land and the energy of the land as it exists and San Francisco has always been like a gold rush town, even with the tech industry, mm -hmm. that feels like it was like a gold rush and now it's like crashing. So yeah, that's super interesting. Have you done any research on that at all? Like the, the gold rush energy of the Bay? Well, no, but I'm like very interested in the geology of the Bay and how it's this, they have, there's a ribbon chart, which is this rock that's basically designed for crumbling because we're in earthquake territory. So it's this, you'll see it if you drive down towards Rodeo Beach, you see these big walls of it. But there's also serpent, serpentinite, which is this greenish rock that is exists. It's like very rare. It exists here and I think off the coast of Ireland and maybe one other place. But there's not, and it's a sub, like deep subterranean rock that only is on the surface in these areas because of tectonic pressure. And that is a very special rock. And I'm, I don't like, I don't know any like the woo qualities about it, but I know that it's like, it absorbs a ton of carbon, which scientists have found recently. It's like a carbon sink, which I find super interesting that we have these these like natural ways of processing carbon just like in the rocks around the Bay Area. Right. But I'm wondering like what other significance there is there. I, I remember looking it up once if there was like any of that crystal websites had any information on it. And I, I honestly just don't remember what they said about it. Yeah, that's fair. You've got a lot going on. <laughs> that's so cool. I'll have to look up serpentite. Serpentinite. Ser serpentinite. Okay. Yeah, it's like this really awesome dark greenish rock. Next time you walk around the Bay Area, when you come up, you'll maybe you'll notice it. Okay, yeah, I know. I haven't looked for it, so it hasn't piqued my my interest or notice. Well, so the other kind of part of your work that you mentioned that I would love to talk to you about is making art for satellites, and the fact that you have a drawing that you etched into the side of at least one satellite up in space right now. Is that still true? No, it burned up in low Earth orbit. Oh, it did. Okay. I was looking at your website, so I wasn't maybe like the most up-to-date news. But it was in space. I mean, I don't even know if I, I don't know when it burned up, but I know that those satellites only orbit the Earth for two to three years and then they fall to the Earth. And then they, when entering the Earth atmosphere, they just fry up. So I kind of, which I also loved about yeah. that 
you know, I don't want my art to be space waste. So, so how did you get into that? It feels like to get involved with space, you have to be like an astronaut. <laughs> you, like that kind of blows my mind. So random. Yeah. It was a cool opportunity. It was actually from a residency in, I don't think they do it anymore, but for a number of years, there was a, yes, the company still exists. And at the time it was a startup, it's called Planet Labs. And what they do is they make these low earth orbit satellites that are like the size of a shoebox, And they'll launch like 200 at a time and have it orbit the earth. And since 2016, when I did that residency, they're just scanning the earth like every minute. But it really got me thinking I still work with satellites because of that residency. They gave me access to their images, which is awesome. And so, and then the questions that I formed while I was on that residency just have stayed with me. So I, I'm still trying to answer them. But they decided that it'd be cool for me to just submit some, etch some work on the side of the satellite. And so I did. And then they launched it. I think in 2017, they launched it. And then it was up for, burned up right before the pandemic. <laughs> Oh, you're like, R.I.P. little buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you said you're still working in satellites then or? Yes, I still reference a lot of those images and then from different sites, like I'll even track, I'll use these satellite images because they're basically real time now mm. to look at what's going on in the San Francisco Bay and like when to harvest salt, which is cool. So funny. And when when is the best time to harvest salt? Generally the summer, just the driest season. But it's different every year. And then this year is probably going to be terrible because we had so much rain. So but we'll see. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. And I like the rain. So, And then I did a project in Nevada again. Actually, both all the work I've done in Nevada have been with satellite imagery where I've gone to this on to these places, these sites. One was a lithium mine. The other one was this dry lake that was the site of a couple different land artists working there and tracked it with satellite images and then did a series of drawings with it. And it's very much about looking, you know, our imagination of landscape through imagery. Because if you think about how we see landscape, it's a lot of the time it's through images and how much our understanding of place has changed through technology, like things like Google Maps and satellite view that we have there. Yeah. And it's definitely, I get lost really easily. So I rely heavily on, on maps and Google Maps and things like that. So funny. Not by foot, but if I'm in a vehicle, I'll get lost pretty quickly. Yeah. Cause you're going too fast to register. Whereas if you're walking, you're like <laughs> tracking yeah. in a way that I think is easier. Maybe. I don't know. No, that's exactly it. And like, I can't. Yeah. So I just, I always go the wrong direction. So I'm always looking at maps. So that's come into my work. With the Silver Peak for that series, I, I went to the site of the only active lithium pond in the country in Nevada. And then I made sure that I had that site prioritized. So when I came home, I could look at the satellite images of when I was there and kind of reference that. And then I also reference from 2010 when the mine was just beginning to at the time, I think it was like 2019, I started, I finished the drawing, but I like juxtapose those images. And I think what's interesting too, is that these images are private. I have access to them because I was granted special access, but it's not, they're not accessibly public. So it's also a conversation of who has the, the vision, basically, who has the ability to see and what kind of power that gives you. And especially when it comes to land and landscape and land ownership and 
thinking through these kind of extended colonial frameworks that we live in. Yeah. Are you allowed to share them publicly as an artwork? I'm allowed to draw them photorealistically, which is why they're in drawings. And I have to get permissions to, if I'm going to share, it depends on which satellite it comes from. There are certain sets that I can share if they're from U.S. NASA satellites, but if they're from their satellites, I have to get permissions. What, but what's interesting is to view those images, even if they're from public satellite or from government satellites, is I still have to use their software, which is private. Yeah, I mean, it just the idea of private property, yeah. as you're talking, just really, it throws it into question. Like, when you think about that, if that's private property, then I don't know. And who's deciding? It just all feels very unfair. <laughs> how, like, how? Yeah, how, yeah. How do you keep, how do you stay inspired and excited? Or do you, do you get bummed out or? Yeah, no, totally. I think a lot of what you're dealing with is heavy, you know? A couple things. I have a three-year-old, so I, I have no choice. <laughs> I, I have to keep smiling and keep doing the best I can every day because I have this little person that needs, needs that. And then I think I'm, I feel really lucky that I, I'm an artist and I'm able to have the emotional and physical space to work through those feelings. I think that helps a lot just to be present with it. And then simple things just make me really, really happy, like having, having a garden or like seeing flowers bloom. Or um, I tend to be a structural thinker and look very much at the big picture, and that, that can be very, very, very depressing and daunting. And so... I try to keep my, I think it's, a, I think it's something that I do that's not the best because I, I, I keep really busy and that makes me just look at what's immediately ahead of me and that's helpful. Right. Yeah. Like you put your blinders on to what you're working on and yeah. Yeah. You kind of have to, you have to do both. You have to have all the views, but I, I don't know. I just think that I've learned having a kid has made me focus on the immediate more because you need, you still need to make fucking dinner and you still need to like make yeah. sure like the toilet's clean or like whatever there's like such there's like a very immediate need it's like kid needs to get clothes on like things like that so and what do you clean your toilet with because does I'm like freaking out at like the things that clean bathrooms in particular because I like get I like cut my own hair so I get these drain clogs mm -hmm. and I'm like the only thing that works is like the most poisonous, toxic Drano. Yeah. So I'm like, what am I supposed to do here? I've tried the vinegar with baking soda. Like, I would love for that to work, but it just doesn't, you know? I don't know. Do you think about that? Oh, my cleaning products all the time. My, my sister is like a, a wellness fanatic and she makes all of her own cleaning products with like essential oils. And Oh, wow. Okay. And she's like, you should do that. I'm like, I would love to, but like. So this, when? this question's like triggering for you that I just No, it's not. It. <laughs> but, but it is, yeah, of course. And you're like, if you look around, you're like, this is a crazy world we live in. Like we have all these like individual products for all these different things. And like, like who designed this? Yeah. Yeah, it's fucked. Okay, well, we can move on. <laughs> I want to talk more about like just you in the studio because, you know, you do all this research and then you go into the studio and you make these beautiful objects. So like when you're making one of your salt moons, do you, is that proprietary information or can you share like the process of making those and how it 
evolved into a moon as one of your chosen kind of forms that you use? Sure. Let's see. Everything starts in a sketchbook. I actually wish I had my sketchbook so I could show you. I, I leave my sketchbook at home because I do a lot of sketching at night once my kid's sleeping because that's the quiet time. But I'll plan everything first and then I'll start getting the panels made and then the salt a lot of times is very wet so I have to make sure it's dry. And spending time by the bay, you have to understand the tides. And then understanding the tides, you have to understand it. You led me up to look at the sky and look at the moon. And so I started referencing the moon in these images for these pieces because my first salt piece was actually a circle. And that specifically was thinking about the way salt is used in certain ritual and traditions to create protective space and healing space. And I made it right before the election of 2016. Mm. So I was really thinking about protective space, especially protective space for women. And as I'm moving forward, I started still playing with the forms and then it, I realized it does look like a moon. And then I was thinking about the moon and then I started referencing those phases in the artworks themselves. And it just, it made a lot of sense to me, especially in the last body of work, because I was, the last body of work I made with Salt from the Bay was about, I was doing a lot of research about the mercury mining that happened during the gold rush and how that is still in the ocean and thinking about, or not, well, it's still in the Bay and thinking about how long it will take for that mercury to be washed out to sea and filtered out. And that's all based on the tides. And so just thinking about how the whole universe is like working together to heal. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, and you know, when I asked you that question about the moon, it did not even occur to me that the moons are responsible for tides and the tides are so, are the ocean. I love it. And we are salt. And- but I also think <laughs> that your initial reason for doing it, the like protective circle was like, very much of the moment. 2016 was such a time that I feel like we all were making work Mm -hmm. that was like directly responding to that time. And I'll be really curious to go back and look at those four years as like a time, the art from that time, because I feel like we moved on and people are not necessarily Mm -hmm. making the same kind of work. I have a moon piece from you that's in my daughter's room. Yeah, I think partly because it was so stressful. Mm That was a time where I was really starting to lean in to some witchy things. Yeah. Like I kind of learned more about it during that time. And so, yeah, I was really into moons. And I feel moons are like a gateway to like more witchy ideas because they're so accessible and present. Yeah. And like I'm really interested in this like this dark side. I believe that you have to have both light and the dark and thinking about these shadow sides of ourselves or these materials or the impacts we've had on landscapes or environment. And I think that when moon is like the divine feminine, mm-hmm. a lot of times it's associated with the female. So I think in the ocean is as well. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, no, totally I'm into that. Yeah. The scary, scary ocean with its volatile emotions is somehow compared to a woman. Cool. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or like how hurricanes were named after women for the first 
I don't know how many decades before we decided yeah. to change it recently. Yeah, I was going to say like last year or something we changed it. <laughs> yeah. That's the hilarious. first, one of the first videos about climate change that was from 1958, I believe, was about like a, a storm, like a, a stormy woman and how the planet's warming. Wow. Okay. Find it. It's it's called the Unchained Goddess. Okay, wow. I mean, like in some ways it's yeah. cool. It's hard because I'm like, some ways, yes, that's awesome. But in other ways, it's like basically saying the earth has our period or something. Yeah, and it's just like this framework that's clearly from patriarchy. You know, why don't we worship storms or like, why, like, it's just think of rather than. Yeah, why do we have to gender, make it a gender at all? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm really, I've been researching for a while. I'm just really fascinated by this relationship between women and gender. That's something mm. I'm thinking about for years. So I love it's coming up right now. Well, the thing that just came up in my mind, like as we were talking is so many languages use gender to define nouns. And then also like the way that the word is written with the ending. And so it's baked into their head that things are gendered. So mm -hmm. I really wonder how that's going to play out in the next 100. I feel like it will take 100 years to even get a better conception of how to handle it. But like I know in Mexico, they'll use X instead of a, an mm -hmm. ending. But you can't do that for every pronoun because la mer, le mer, that's like an important differentiation. But mm -hmm. I don't know. You speak multiple languages, right? Not well. I just, well, right. and romantic language. Like a little French, a little Spanish, but yeah, that's all yeah. in there. And I don't, I, yeah, I wonder how that will play out too in terms of, because language is such a, it's a container for how we perceive the world. And yeah, it's yeah. like really limiting if that's all you see when you're raised, you know, and if that's the only mm -hmm. tool that you have to use to talk about things. But yeah, I wonder if you could. I don't know. I mean, now that we have to solve it right now, but I'm like, how can we fix it? <laughs> it does. I mean, but the thing, the amazing thing about language is that it does evolve, you know? It does. Yeah. So I'm yeah. interested. Even just talking about it, like A is no longer feminine. It's now something else. And then E, you know, if it ends in an E, like it's not masculine, it's something else. Cause I'm a French mm -hmm. major. So I'm like thinking like, how do we get these Frenchies to talk about it a different way? Like the whole, yeah. do you watch Emily in Paris at all? This is a real I tangent, haven't. but No, no, but I want to hear more. Well, so she's an American and she goes and lives in Paris and works at a marketing firm as like the brand social media expert. And she's terrible at French and like from the Midwest. So it's like she's a total basic bitch coming in. And they put her like jokingly because they're mad at her on this like vaginal douche cream client that is like right. their client. And so she's OK, whatever. So then when she's researching it, she finds out vagina is masculine in French, like le vagin. And she's like, what? Like my vagina is not a man. And so then she tweets about it like the vagina is a woman or something to that effect. And. And then it gets all this attention from the first lady and everyone's like, yeah, feminism. So I don't know. It just made me think of that. That's amazing. How did I miss that studying French? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, 
I know. Yeah. Well, because how often did you talk about vaginas in French class? <laughs> Let's be True. real. I, I didn't, but that's something I would just look up on my own, though. Just like trying to talk to someone about. Yeah, right. Totally. You're like, how do I say vagina? Because it's going to come up. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't talk about vaginas that much back then. Too bad. What? I think the penis, the slang word for penis is la queue, like a mm-hmm. line or the line. And that's feminine. So maybe the trick I love is it. with They're just, the yeah, French. Sure. It just goes back yeah. and forth. Well, okay. This is a good place to move on. Did you ever do the artist's way? I did. Long time ago. I barely remember it, but I tried. I watched a talk with her recently. Yeah. Jackie Battenfield, right? Julia Cameron. Truly, I'm getting her mixed up with someone else. Okay. Basically, the artist date is something you're supposed to make for yourself like during the week in addition to your morning pages. That's like super fun and it gets you inspired and it's it can be just like going to a store and buying yourself a really cool colored pen that mm-hmm. makes you excited to write your morning pages or whatever. So I thought, oh, the part of what this podcast could be is to find out like what do artists do to get themselves feeling that playful joy in the studio, especially with someone like you where your work is so heady and challenging and comes with a lot of emotional, sociological baggage, you know? So is there anything that you do, even if it's not in the studio, but just in general to kind of like refill your your tank, so to speak, not to be too cheesy? Yeah, I mean, I think I just got to get moving, really. Like, I got to move their mo- I got to go for a hike or go for a run or a static dance by myself or do something. I feel like, especially in the studio, it's very laborious. It's I'm, I'm working with heavy, hard materials. I'm lifting mm-hmm. a lot. Or, like, sometimes I'm just hunched for a long time. And so yeah, yeah I'll just put on a song and just kind of shake it out for a minute. Yeah. With, really like, good. what music do you like? I don't know. It's like all all kinds of things. It could be really, really dumb. <laughs> sometimes it's like a bad pop song. Sometimes it's, I don't know, cumbia. Sometimes I don't, just anything. What's like bad pop to you? What's bad pop? Because everyone I mean, has their, their interpretation of that. Like something you heard like, on the radio repeatedly in in the early 2000s. That I, I was going to say, like, who... Britney Spears or Backstreet Boys. Like... No, not even that. Like some kind of <laughs> B-list, like something you just know every word to because you heard it when you were of a certain age on the radio but like no idea who did it semi-charmed kind of life yeah maybe something but not (laughs) no because i know they're i know that during the whole backstreet boy like britney the band phase but just bad i can't even think of anything right now because i i don't think i've ventured into that for a while it's funny because i was watching shrinking have you ever seen that no it's it's a tv show on apple tv well, no. you have a child, I don't. So, like, my <laughs> capacity to take in content is a lot larger than yours, probably. So, I'll just like pass it on to you. But basically, one of the characters, they make a joke that her ex boyfriend, they're like, they haven't broken up yet, but he's an asshole. We're meant to think. He's like, oh, I don't want to ride with you. I just can't stand your music. And you're like, oh my God, how terrible. And then she gets in the car, and it's totally what you just described. Like, Early 2000s, late 90s, like a song that you don't know the name of it, but it's like, I love Bare Naked Ladies, but a Bare Naked Ladies song. And it just, I was like, oh my God, yes, that era of music is so intense. It's so specific to its time. It has to have like a beat though, something that get you moving. 
I respect it. Deals. It's like one of those things where like no one's supposed to know about it. No one's supposed to hear it. You have to do headphones. And sometimes it's just like I listen to a lot of college radio, like the Berkeley College Radio here, yeah. Cal, UC Berkeley. And so sometimes it's just whatever they're playing. Yeah, totally. Like I listen to 101.3 here, which is just K-Rock, you know, and so I hear all kinds of random shit and I'm like dancing in my car. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. As I've gotten older, something shifted in the last five years just for me. We were like, I have more capacity for like things that I just had no taste for before. I don't know. Mm. Like I, I just, I can appreciate more fully things that I wasn't normally interested in. And I just think I don't know if it's because I have, like, more respect for the creative process and I just, like, yeah. or I'm just, like, lightening up. I get just, that. Like, yeah. the, like, art school snobbery has kind of, like, faded away or something. I For me, yeah. that's some of it. Yeah, totally. Do you think parenting has also contributed to that at all or the the intensity of the pandemic or? Yeah, I think, you know parenting for sure because you really have to think through or at least for me I try to think through what I'm exposing my daughter to and and then also you're just so fucking busy that you don't take anything too seriously you know like I'm things I think I would have been more upset about in my 20s I like don't don't phase me and Mm, like what I don't know if I make a stupid mistake I'm trying to think of what I used to be really hard on myself if I was giving a, an artist talk or had a, or had a piece up, I would be mm. really self-critical. And now I'm just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> or yeah. I was, I guess I was more self-conscious. We're judging your own taste in music yeah. or, yeah, I get that. I think one of the things that I've been doing as I get older, but also through this weird time, just trying to find fun wherever it is mm-hmm. instead of thinking like, I have to have this type of fun because that's the acceptable type of fun to have as an artist and to be a certain type of person. And I'm like, well, if fun looks like that, you know, like going on hikes with random Sierra Club strangers when I first moved to L.A., great. That is the kind of fun I'm going to have. So, yeah, I appreciate that. It's like you get over yourself and some of your Mm -hmm. junior high. Can I like sit at that table and not be judged or I don't know. Yeah, and I think the pandemic was so heavy and just so exhausting. I had a very small child at the time and just no child care and oh, wow. had a lot of responsibilities. And I think now it's just, I just try to enjoy every minute I can. Just why not? We don't live as long as rocks. We sure don't. <laughs> They're like the superheroes of existence. They just keep going for like millions of years. Yeah, do, yep. like rocks never go away, right? They just turn into sand. They, yeah, they just transform to other things. Yeah, other types of rock. It's amazing. The cycle. Yeah, and like you could say that we do too. We have some beliefs. You know? I was going to say, yeah. I didn't want to go yeah. there unless you did, but yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, and you know, ashes to ashes kind of thing. Like we mm-hmm. fertilize the ground or whatever. Yeah, um, and now, now we can be compost in Oregon. We can do it. Okay. To be cremated first or do they just bury you like in a box and just wait for it to happen i think there's some kind of gosh i haven't looked into this in a while but for what there's like a mushroom suit there's one that's one option oh oh, yeah there's like certain dressings yeah oh that's i don't know how i feel about that i guess 
It feels more visceral to let mushrooms take over your body than it does to just burn you all at once. Well, I think you're buried reason. in the ground. So no, like, you I know you are, yeah. but you know what I mean? There's something about, or for if to do that to a parent or, you know, we cremated my dad. So thinking about like seeing his body and then yeah. putting the suit, I'm like, that that takes another leap of like, this is not them, you know, yeah. and being comfortable with that physicality still remaining, you know? Yeah. Um, but I respect that, it. I think that's great. Yeah. See, I can think of it for myself, but thinking of it with loved ones, it becomes a lot harder. And uh, I think there's that's like the real leap, the mental leap there. And yeah, we'll see. We'll see. My partner always says that he wants to just be like buried in the ground. And I say the same thing, but the, the thought of actually having to do it. But maybe, I don't know, I find some peace about someone I love becoming a tree, part of a tree or nurturing a tree yeah. or flowers or that's A hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know. No, it's for tough. sure. I think yeah. like with anything in the death industry, there's got to be a way for the people who are afraid of the actual body. Mm -hmm. Like there's a way to aestheticize it where we don't have to see the gross part, whatever that is. Don't put the yeah. mushroom coat on until after the funeral. I grew up Catholic and we had to go a lot of wakes. And yeah. then with a wake, the body's preserved and there's a viewing. Yes. And, um, I don't know. There's something you're just looking Ooh. at this body and being like, this is, this is, this is not my grandma. Like, yeah. She looks plastic. I couldn't even look at my grandma when we did that. I was like, so that was the first like major death we had had in the family. And I was like, no, this is not happening. I don't even, I don't even think I looked directly at her in the open casket because I was so yeah. horrified. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's interesting how we tackle. Yeah. Well, and then like with my dad, he was an organ donor and then we did cremation and he was not dressed up at all. Like they didn't do any makeup because mm -hmm. what would be the point? And yeah. I think maybe it was soon enough afterwards where he looked so like himself that that was also eerie. You know, it's like he wasn't yeah. some weird formaldehyde, you know, like he was just him. And that was its own kind of uncomfortability. Like it definitely, I don't know if I would prefer that either. I don't know. It's so hard. It's just hard. We can yeah. change the topic. <laughs> <That's> so dark. <laughs> I know. I track darkness. What can I say? I love yeah. it. Do you have any? Are you Scorpio? No. I, I am a Cancer with a lot of Virgo. Oh wow, cool. Well, I have a couple of things. So one is I noticed that in an interview you did, you said that your favorite karaoke song was "Under Pressure" by David Bowie and Queen, and I just yeah. wanted to talk to you about that because that is also my favorite karaoke song. But I wanted to hear why it was yours and also if you do karaoke a lot or did before the pandemic. I went through a phase where I did karaoke a lot, like when I was younger in my 20s. Mm -hmm. Haven't really done it here in the Bay Area too much and definitely haven't done it since the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, there was something so amazing about singing that song at the top of your lungs. Um, yeah. it's. I feel like it's just designed to really release pressure <laughs> yeah well because it's like the emotional highs mm -hmm. and lows as as well as the notes go from high to low like he literally has freddie has a moment in that song where it's like he's a kettle boiling 
and mm-hmm. it's gone off and it's just like like screech yeah. out. <laughs> and isn't he but screaming sounds, why? Yes. And like, well, <laughs> And I feel like I, there's so many times in my day where I'm like, want to do, I feel that way. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And then, you know, like the David Bowie, like the love, you know, it just, mm-hmm. I feel like that song is really speaks to maybe your dark side and also my side of, yeah, like, what are we all here for? We're here to help each other out. Mm-hmm. I've sung that song, like been in the dark place. And then I've also sung it feeling like I want to help others. So I don't know. I think it's a great one. It's very timeless. And I think the scatting at the beginning is so embarrassing that it immediately disarms you. For karaoke, yes. Like, I always actually start yeah. with that song because I just know no matter what you do, you're going to sound like an idiot scatting to that song. So <laughs> Of course. <laughs> There's just no way to sound cool. So I was like, okay, I'll try to do my cool song later once I'm warmed up with Under Pressure. But Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think I have a cool song. It's just that one. <laughs> that and like... What, which other one do you have? Oh, the Madonna from 1985. Basically any Madonna song oh. from that time. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I could see that for you. Mm-hmm. Love it. I listened to a lot of Madonna as a small child. And it's like... Yeah. In, oh, yeah, me like too. In my blood. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. What was your song from that era, if you had to choose one? I don't know. They are all pretty evenly good. Yeah. Like, I named a spoon after Lucky Star because it had a little star-shaped flower in it. Yeah. They're all just so good. Well, cool. I guess as we're wrapping up, I just wanted to give you the platform to talk about anything that you have coming up or that you want people to check out that you're doing. Yeah. Gosh, what am I doing? Well, I have, I'm in a show right now in Las Vegas that I mentioned earlier called oh, yeah. Modern Desert Markings. And it's 10 artists re- responding to land art in Nevada. And so cool. I made a couple of pieces on that. And that is going to be up until, I think, through July. And then okay. over the summer, I'm in a group show with, I think, I'm one of 10 artists again. It's called On Land and it's at the Marin Mocha. Oh, That's cool. curated by Chris Kerr, who runs Round Weather Gallery here in, in Oakland. Oh, great. And it's a really awesome group of artists, all local to the Bay Area. And I'm stoked to show with them. And I'm cool. going to be showing some of my satellite drawings there. Oh, and awesome. I am going to be showing, I think, a couple places in 2024, but nothing. I haven't signed the contracts and everything yet, but I'll be... So top secret. Not top secret, Pretty- but... One likely in Los Angeles and the other one here in Oakland, but so I'm working on that. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was like a pure delight. I You're so knowledgeable about science that I feel like we talked about so many cool like rock related things and I don't know <laughs> that I didn't expect yeah. to get into. Oh my gosh, this is so much fun and I'm so happy to connect with you because I look at your painting all the time. And it brings us so much joy. So, <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.